0: We're going to start today with the Bible, and for many of you, you may say, well, that's kind of uh, understood, it just seems natural to believe in the Bible, kind of like uh, the pastor who was a little mischievous. I don't know any pastors that are that way, but I heard about this one. He was a little mischievous and he was going into a Sunday school room in between worship and Sunday school, but between those two. And and as he walked in, there was a little girl sitting there waiting for her parents to pick her up. And she had under her arm a book titled Jonah and the Big Fish. And he just sat down beside. said, what are you reading there? And she said, it's, it's a book called Jonah and the Big Fish. And it's from the Bible. And he said, do you believe that story? She said, absolutely, it's in the Bible, I believe it. And he said, well, do you know any way you can prove it's true? And he said, I'll she said, I'll tell you what, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah if it's true. And he said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? She said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> and well, for many of us, we, like that little girl, just assume that the Bible is true. Belief in it is lessening across our country. In a recent survey, it was determined that 28% of Americans believe the Bible is the actual Word of God. 28%. Now, compare that to about 25 years ago, and it was almost 40%. And you can see it's gradually declining. And as challenges come from every angle, when people ask questions about the Bible, when people start to tell you things about it, as they come from all angles, we need to learn to have better answers than perhaps we've had. We need to learn to be able to explain to people why I trust the Bible. You see, for many of us, when people come to us, why why do you trust the Bible? Some of us would say, well, I just uh, always have. That's what my parents taught me. And while I understand that reason, for someone that doesn't believe the Bible, they just simply say, well, my parents told me not to. For some of us, we would say, well, (laughs) here's the deal. I, I tried it and it worked for me. The problem with that is if you say that about the Bible, then somebody could come and say, I tried the Koran and it worked for me. And so the question that I want to deal with, the issue that I want to deal with today is how do I know that the Bible is true? In 1 Peter chapter 3, it tells us that we need to be able to give an apology, a defense, a reason for the hope that is within. And today what I want to do is using a passage of Scripture out of Second Peter. If you've got your Bibles, turn there to Second Peter chapter 1. I want to look at how we can know that we can trust the Bible. Now, the reason that this is vital, the reason that this is foundational is because the rest of what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how do we know we're saved. We're going to talk about assurance of salvation. We're going to talk about eternity of the or eternal security of the believer. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about the Trinity. What exactly is that? We're going to talk about all kinds of issues, but in order to be able to talk intelligently about those issues, to give some definitive answer, we've got to deal with this issue first. And the truth is that the Bible is important because our salvation depends on understanding the gospel message of it. As Adrian Rogers has written, it is our assurance is depending on the resting in the truths of the Bible. Our spiritual growth depends on living by the principles of the Bible. And our power in witnessing depends on the confidence we have in the Word of God. And so today what I'm going to do is give you an answer for why I trust the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 12. Now, we're mainly going to focus on verse 16 and following, but verse 12 sets it up a little bit. I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth. Uh, This is a a passage that preachers use sometimes to say, I know that you think you know this, but we're going to just emphasize it again. Some of you may say, I know about the Bible, preacher." Okay, I'll just zone out on this one. But Peter says, I'm going to tell you again just to make sure it's established. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear. Now, a great picture. That this body is but a tent. That it's not a house. It's not a home. We don't plan to live here forever. It is a tent. And I will make every effort to see that my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So he sets it up by saying, I'm I'm reminding you again, I'm telling you again, I'm about to put aside this body. Before I do, I want to remind you one more time. Verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from the God, the Father, when the voice came to him for the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the words of the prophets made more certain. And you who dwell to pay attention to it as to a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. The prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I want to give you... Five reasons that I trust the Bible this morning, and the first of that is is because the Bible is reliable. Notice what he says in verse sixteen. We didn't just come up with this stuff and write it down somewhere. We're not just making it up as we go. It, what he's saying there is you can trust that what I'm telling you is true. It's reliable. In Luke chapter 1, he talks about writing and the reason that he wrote to Theophilus. And he says that the reason he wrote was to convince him of things that other people have been talking about. And that he set out to write an orderly account of what was happening. Luke gives us understanding that he went through and researched and, and did all kinds of stuff to put it together. In order that when he got done, it would be a copy that could be verified and relied upon. In my second round of semest- uh, of seminars at um, Southern recently for my Ph.D. work, part of what we had to do is we had to write a paper, 20-page paper, and then what we had to do is we had to submit it to everybody in the class and to our professor the week before we came to class. And part of our week and a half of instruction was that we sat in a room and everyone got to tell us what they liked and didn't like about our paper. And everybody got done with it. And then the professor said, now let me give you my advice. And I want to tell you, it's been a long time since I got nervous in a classroom setting. I mean, I have those dreams where I, I'm going into a test I hadn't prepared for. Anybody still have those dreams, you know? Where, you know, I show up to class and somehow there's a test there. And I had not even been to class. And I got a final. And I don't know what I'm doing. And at that moment... I don't know the word, a quiver in my liver. i got a little weirdness. You know, when he said, it's my turn. And this is one of the things he says. He asked me on a couple occasions, and I was able to do it, thankfully. But he says, you need to be able to tell me exactly where you got this from. And what we have from Luke is this idea that he researched it to the point that he could tell me where you got it exactly from. Outside, beside, out there where it says reliable, just write down Luke 1. And I want you to go back and just read that introduction. It's really the introduction of both Luke and Acts, although it seems that Luke gets about halfway through and says, I've got to put this into two books and I'm going to write to him in two things. But he starts out in the Gospel of Luke and says, this is what I'm writing. Now, there are five things about the Bible that I want you to understand why I say it's reliable. The first reason is it is varied but consistent. You can go ahead and write all three down because I'm going to go through them real quick. It is varied but consistent. Secondly, it is a number of early copies. And thirdly, there are early translations into multiple languages. Let me start with the first one. It is varied but consistent. The Bible was written in three different languages over three continents by 40 different authors, including people that were different socioeconomic levels. You had David, who was a shepherd boy that turned into a king. You have Jeremiah, that was the prophet. You have Amos, that was a farmer. You have Joshua, who was grown up in slavery and then became a leader. You have Moses, that was a royalty and then went to be a slave. You've got Peter, who was a fisherman. You've got Matthew, that was a tax collector. You've got 40 different authors over a span of somewhere between 600 to 1,500 years, and yet they all speak towards the same story. We don't call the Bible a collection of books. It is a book. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, if we were to set out here in this room, and I were to pick 40 people at random, and I were going to have you write 20 pages, and just tell you to write about God. And then we were to get 20 people from New York City and tell them to write about God. And then we were to get 10 people from Africa and tell them to write about God and put that all together and make one story. Anybody ever done uh, Mad Libs? Anybody, if you don't know what I'm doing, just say no. Anybody done Mad Okay, I'll move on. No Mad Libs. Is this thing where you just give a word. Somebody says, give me a noun, give me an adjective, and you put it into a story. The person has no clue what the story is. And then you read it, and it's funny because nobody has a clue what you're saying, and it doesn't make sense. And what's amazing about the Bible is even though you've got 40 different authors over hundreds of years on three different continents and three different languages, it doesn't read like Mad Libs, it reads like one unified story. Here's the second thing, a number of early copies. Sometimes when people are disputing the Bible, they'll say something like, we don't have any of the originals. And the truth is, we don't. But that's really not surprising. Here's the thing you need to know about the Bible. It is the best amount of evidence. We have the best amount of evidence for the Bible of any writing that we have from a time period before 1900. The best. There are over six thousand pieces of manuscript of the bible now here's how that's important julius caesar has a work called gallic wars that they teach in colleges and high schools all across this land and there are less than 10 copies of it homer who wrote the iliad and the odyssey taught in high schools and colleges across this land there are less than 10 copies of it Aristotle's big work, Poetics, that is taught in colleges and universities and high schools across this land, has less than five copies. You compare that, which, by the way, I don't hear anybody jumping up and down, yelling and screaming because they're teaching Julius Caesar in the schools. Ten copies, five copies, ten copies, verse 6,000 copies. There's nothing anywhere close. And not only is it, er, is it copies, they're early copies. The soonest we have any of Julius Caesar's writings comes 900 years after he lived. With Aristotle, it's 1400 years after he lived. With the Bible, after John died, who we believe is the last one, we are within 20 years of John. It's not even close. Not only that, after all those copies get distributed, 6,000 copies, they begin to translate them into multiple languages. You see, at the end of Jesus' time on earth, he says that it needs to be take the gospel to all peoples. Ta ethne is the Greek word. And the thing about peoples, it's not nations, although that's what's in most of your Bibles. It means nations or people groups. It doesn't mean uh, geopolitical nations. They didn't have maps drawn out. Then it's different groups of people. And one of the things that distinguishes different groups of people is language and so in order to get the gospel to different languages they had to translate it and we have very early versions of the bible in syriac coptic and latin now the point of that is that if they're translated early that means you had a copy of it early and you got all of them matching together two other reasons the bible is reliable first of all it's cited by church fathers now you may not know who the church fathers are, but just know that they were the next generation after the apostles. People like Clement of Rome, Augustine, Athanasius, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, some of those good names, some of you are thinking about naming children or grandchildren. And here's the amazing thing about the church fathers is they quote Scripture everywhere. Lengthy portions of Scripture. What they would do is they would write commentaries, and they would write a commentary on Second Peter, and they would say, as in Peter's second letter, he says, and then they'll write an entire section of Scripture. In fact, they write so much Scripture in their writings that one guy named Bruce Metzger, who's a scholar, much smarter than any of us in this room, and I'm not, not denigrating anyone, he's just really, really smart says that if you were to take and put together all the church father's literature, you would come up with 90% of the New Testament on your own without anything else. Now, here's why all that piled on itself works. Here's the reason. You see, there's this theory out there that a bunch of monks or a bunch of people got together and just began to match up pieces of the Bible to make sure they all work together. A couple of years ago, uh, I was at a pastor's conference, uh, I believe it was in Nashville, and uh, Vodi Bauckham spoke. And he was talking about this conspiracy theory. He was, he was at a uh, college campus, and one of the people in, in a debate asked him, don't you know that the monks all made that look like they wanted it to look? And Vodi just said, let me tell you what would have had to happen. He said there are three levels that this conspiracy has to work on. First of all, they would have to go and round up 6,000 different manuscripts, make the changes they wanted to make to the manuscripts, don't let anyone see that they made any changes, no whiteout, no any changes, then get them back to where they were without getting caught. After that, they've got to round up all the translations that were made from those 6,000 originals in Syriac, Coptic, and uh, Latin. And as they begin to look at that and put it together, they've got to make all the changes, make sure no one sees where they are, get them back to where they were, where they stole them from without getting caught. And on top of that, then they have to go and to find all the church files wherever they cited any of these things. And they have to change it just so it's right. And they have to make sure no one sees their inkwork. They've got to get them back to where they stole them from before they get caught. And if they get to do all of that, then maybe they could change something. His point is that there's too much evidence otherwise. Here's the last little piece of why I think it's reliable it's because it has eyewitness accounts during the time of other eyewitnesses. One of the most popular shows on television for a long time now has been CSI. And it's just a one in a long line of, of crime shows. They're all over the place now. They're Bones and CSI and. You know, it goes all the way back. Uh, somebody said CSI is just really a reworking of something like Quincy. I mean, some of you may watch Quincy at one time. But it's all these shows. And their shows are about forensic evidence or circumstantial evidence. And they always say that eyewitness accounts are not as reliable or, or the shows they try to say that. But here's the thing. When you have all the circumstantial evidence, which I just gave you with the church fathers, the early copies, the early translations, and you put that with the fact that these are eyewitnesses who had other eyewitnesses around, and you put those together, it makes a very convincing case. Whenever the apostles write, they always talk about what they saw. In first John, just take your Bible and turn one page. Somebody may not have to turn. Turn one page to 1 John. To the right you ought to know that if you're at second peter you're not going to go back to first john right first john verse 1 that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen which we have looked at which we have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life what John says, what I'm telling you, I have seen with my eyes, I have heard with my ears, I have touched with my hands. I am an eyewitness. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, even when Paul's writing that, that Paul talks about all the people that saw the Lord. He says that 500 people, he appeared to 500 people, and it says, most of whom are still alive to this day. And so what you have to understand is as these writings begin to get distributed, there are eyewitnesses to the things that were happening. And you can just imagine if Peter wrote it one way and it didn't happen that way, one of the 300 people would say it didn't happen that way. We don't have any of that. The first reason that I believe the Bible is because it's reliable. So you say, wait, Pastor, but what about Science. It's an interesting thing about science and the Bible. You always hear about them in conflict with each other. You always hear that they're at each other. Here's the interesting thing. Science has yet to disprove anything written in the Bible. I'm going to say that again. Science has yet to disprove anything in the Bible. In the 1800s, the French Institute of Science wrote a pamphlet titled 51 Incontrovertible Facts that Prove the Bible is Not True. And they put this out in the late 1800s. At the present time, there is not a reputable scholar who believes any of those 51 things to be true. Science changes as much as anything else in this world. The only constant we have in written word is God's word. It has never been proven wrong. Not one I, not one T. They've all been dotted. They've all been crossed. And so when people try to tell you that, there are theories out there that try to, but none of them have disproved anything. Here's the second reason I trust the Bible. Not only because it's reliable, but because it speaks of the supernatural. Look at verse 17 and 18 of 2 Peter. It says He received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on that sacred mountain. Now, what He's talking about here is the transfiguration, which was a miraculous event. And in the transfiguration, you have Jesus up on the mountain and you have glory coming and you've got all of this happening. And as all of that's happening, you've got this unbelievable thing. It is a super. Natural occurrence. Some of you say, wait a minute, Pastor, why would you believe the Bible because it's got supernatural stuff in it? And we're not talking about superhuman. We're not talking about getting yourself trained enough. We're not talking about taking enough anabolic steroids to make you do some amazing things, although we've seen that in sports recently. We're talking about supernatural stuff. We're talking about the Red Sea being parted. We're talking about the walls of Jericho falling. We're talking about Elijah calling fire on the mountainside. We're talking about a woman with an issue of blood instantly healed. We're talking about people blind from birth, deaf from birth, lame from birth, immediately healed. We're talking about a man with a withered hand suddenly healed. And one of my favorites, we're talking about Jesus who told the disciples, Hey, y'all go on on the water. I'll be over there in a minute somebody, we don't know who, in the boat looks up and says, "Um, Did Jesus say He was coming? Yeah, yeah. Did He tell us how? Uh, No. Because I think that's Him walking on the water. Or my absolute favorite, Friday dead, Sunday alive. It is a book of supernatural stuff. Here's why I trust it. In my life, I live day to day, but I always live with the mindset that this is not all there is. And just to be real honest with you, if I ever came to the conclusion that this is all there is, I would live a depressed life. Because the reality is, I have to have something supernatural to take care of all the natural disaster that I make in my life. I've got to have something supernatural deal with the natural disasters that I have. Now, I know it's beginning to be hurricane season, right? Y'all pray for David and Phyllis. They went down to Florida. um, And David said there's one twirling out there right now. They're in Florida taking a vacation. I talked with him last night. They were in Hattiesburg and going over to Florida today. And we always hear about these natural disasters that happen. And the truth is, in my own life, and I'm not uh, making light of hurricanes or tornadoes or any of that, but we see them on the news all the time. The truth is, left up to my own devices, I would make a natural disaster of my life. In Scripture, it says that when you're controlled by the natural desires of your life, then you give over to all that natural, carnal stuff. But it is only the supernatural of God that can save you. One of the reasons I trust the Bible is because those eyewitnesses' accounts of people tell miraculous, unbelievable things of God. Here's another reason I trust the Bible because it is prophetic. It is prophetic. Look what he says, verse 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Now, I just want you to say real quick, they never doubted the prophets. What he's saying there is, because of what Jesus has done, because of what we have seen and what we have heard, we know for sure that the words that the prophets spoke are true. And you can talk about all the prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament, or the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the Old Testament, or the Old Testament prophecies still to be fulfilled, to be fulfilled or the New Testament prophecies fulfilled later in the New Testament, or the New Testament prophecies fulfilled later in... Our time. But the truth is, if you want to just encapsulate the whole idea that the Bible speaks prophetically, you just look at the life of Jesus. Now, here's the key. It answers specific prophecies. It is fulfilling specific prophecies. Not general ones, but specific ones. Just listen to these real quick. I'm going to list them very quickly. Jesus was said that he would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5, 2. In Luke 2, 4 through 7, it tells us that. That he would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7:14. Luke 1:26 through 38 tells us that. That eventually he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 1, 13, Matthew 26:15 That silver would be used to buy a field. Zechariah 11:13. Matthew 27, 6. That he would be mocked during his death. Psalm 22, 7. And it's fulfilled in the Gospels in Matthew 27. That he would be condemned with criminals. Psalm 22 and John 19. That he would be silent when accused in Isaiah fifty three and Matthew twenty seven fulfills that. That his hands and feet would be pierced in Psalm twenty two and John nineteen it tells us that. That he would be pierced after death, Isaiah fifty three five, Luke twenty three forty six tells us that. That there would be lost cast for his clothes in Psalm twenty two eighteen. Well John nineteen tells us that. That he would be buried by a rich man in Isaiah fifty three nine, and Matthew twenty seven fifty seven it tells us that. And that he would rise from the dead in Psalm 16:10. John 20, verse 11 through 18, shows us that. Now, there are in Scripture over four dozen prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. In his excellent book, uh, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel lists out, or, or seeks out a, a messianic Jew, a guy that was a Jewish person, and ask him why he became convinced Jesus was the Messiah. And he says, it's just simple math that one man could not could fulfill all of that stuff. In fact, he had a statistician figure out how much it would take to fulfill just eight prophecies from the Old Testament about the Messiah. And the statistician came up with this, that to fulfill all eight would be a one in 100 million billion chance. And he says to imagine that, imagine taking silver dollars and covering the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars and then telling someone there's one special one in all of those silver dollars, now go pick it out. He says that's the chance somebody just by chance fulfilled it. Now, remember, I didn't say he fulfilled eight. I said he fulfilled over four dozen. And so if you bump that number up to 48, listen to the probability. There is a one in a trillion, 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 trillion chance. Anybody wants to figure out how many zeros that is real quick? Go right ahead. Got it? I don't. A lot, right? If you want to find just one place, just write it out to the side and go look at it later. Psalm 22. And what is amazing about that chapter of Scripture is that when Jesus is on the cross, He gives us an understanding that He's fulfilling prophecy when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you have to remember, in the old days, the old days, the biblical days, when they wanted to tell people to turn to a place in the scroll or in the Bible, they couldn't open up and say turn to Second Peter because they didn't have Second Peter. They didn't have Psalm 22. That numbering came along years later. And so what happens is whenever you wanted to start telling someone about a scripture or wanted them to turn there, you would quote the first line of the psalm or the scripture. And so if you wanted someone to turn to Amazing Grace in a hymnal, you wouldn't say turn to whatever number Amazing Grace is." You would say, turn to amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. If you wanted someone to turn to, I surrender all, you just said, I surrender all. If you want someone to turn there, you just gave the title. Well, the title of Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you read that passage of Scripture written hundreds of years before Jesus by a man who had never seen crucifixion actually happen, suddenly you get the understanding and he's prophesying Jesus' death. Here's a fourth reason. Because it is divine in origin. Verse 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand, though, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophets on interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is divine In origin, one of the biggest arguments against Scripture is that it's just written by men. And while people out there can believe that, when I look at all the evidence it's piled upon, when I read what Scripture says about itself, I have no other choice but to say that the Bible is divine in its origin, it has God as its ultimate author. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that's on your handout, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, that word literally is inspired. And what you have to understand is the word spire is to breathe. And so it is breathed into by God. It is useful for teaching and rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness so that man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And what we need to understand is tonight we're going to actually talk about how do we get this into our life and allow it to change us. But the truth is that throughout scripture what it testifies is that this book was inspired by God. Now God used the personalities of the people that wrote it, but the words have their origin in Him. Now before I move to the last one, the last reason, I was putting all this together, remembering that sermon I heard from Vodi Balkum at the pastor's conference a couple of years ago. And I thought about this story he told of a girl at Dartmouth. And she came to one of his conferences, and after the conference and after hearing some of this stuff, she decided she needed to give a better answer for what was going on. And one of her classmates at Dartmouth, one of the professors just continually said, if you believe in the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, if you believe any of that, then you are foolish. I can't imagine how any sensible person could do that. Is there anybody here that believes in that Bible? And she said for a few days and weeks, she had sat there and wanted to stand up when he would go on one of those rams. Lodi Balcom gave her this, some of these same kind of ideas. And he said that she put them together and stood up to a professor one day and he said, do you believe that book? And he said, she said, yes, I do. Well, why do you believe it? And she said... I believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And when I try it, it works for me. She said the professor literally was speechless. and told her after class that he still didn't believe it, but at least she gave an answer. Here's the last thing. That I trust the Bible. is because it has a unified purpose. We talked about this briefly at the beginning. We talked about varied sources, but the same message. You've got all these people, three different continents, three different languages. All of these books of the Bible. Sixty-six books. Thirty-nine old, twenty-seven new. You've got forty different authors all across the planet. Different time frames. Six hundred to fifteen hundred years, depending on your dating. You've got all of that. And all of it has one unified purpose, which is God's story. And the hero of the entire thing is Jesus. The Old Testament points towards His coming. The Gospel tells of His earthly ministry, His death, His resurrection. The Acts tell of His continued work through the apostles. The epistles flesh out His teachings. And Revelation tells of the time He's coming again. And when you get through all of that, what you get is that you have a unified purpose in Jesus. Now, here's the thing. The reason that the Bible is so important to me is because it tells me of the one who saved me. And this morning, I would doubt that many of you, although there may be some, have a real problem believing the Bible. But maybe this morning you've come and as you've heard this, you've got a better defense for it. Maybe you come up with your own way to tell people this is why I believe it more than just because they told me to or it worked for me. Maybe you're here this morning and in the midst of all of this, you realize that you haven't been connecting to the Jesus who is the hero of the Bible. And this morning, as we do that, as we've talked about that, you want to connect back with him, maybe for the first time, maybe for another time. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And while I've given basically a doctrinal message today, a message about what the Bible is, perhaps the Lord has spoken to your heart in the midst of that. And this morning, as we have this time of invitation, you have a decision you need to make.